Morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88. Right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You are with Lyle and... Daniel Collier. Daniel, welcome to the show. So glad to have you here for the week. Thank so you. You're going to be here for the uh, pretty much for the week, I think. Yeah, uh, next we've couple got, of days as well, which would be great. Yeah, so that's going to be fantastic. Daniel, what are you thankful for this morning? I am thankful for the innocence of children. You have two children. I do. How old are your children? My little daughter, Eleanor, is four, and my little man, Elias, is one. So they are at that very innocent stage. Oh, yes. We were... It was 8 o'clock last night, and I said to Eleanor, she's lying on the floor of the lounge room, starting to fall asleep, and said, Eleanor, it's bedtime. I'll take you and we'll read you a story. No, I don't want to go to bed. I thought I'll give her five minutes to come accustomed to the idea, and then I'll take her into bed and read her a story. Two minutes in, she's like, Daddy, take me to bed. I want to read a story. I'm like, yep, awesome. Picked her up. We walked in, put her in bed, snuggled her in, gave her a little snuggy blanky thing to cuddle onto, and we picked up a nativity book on Birth of Jesus, which we got from my, one of my church mums, Hope. And it's got little pull-out cards. And so we're reading through it, and every time we get to a point of baby Jesus, she rolls over, leans up, and wants to cuddle the book and cuddle baby Jesus because she loves the idea of him. And we got three quarters of the way through it. I said, Eleanor, would you like to pray before we go to sleep? And she goes, okay. She puts her hands together, closes her eyes, and she goes, dear God, thank you for baby Jesus. Thank you for family. Amen. And it just warmed my heart so much. I'm like, that's such a beautiful thing. Like she doesn't quite understand the complexities of it all, but no, not she, at all. She knows the importance of <laughs> the reality is what I don't doing. understand the complexity <laughs> of it all. <laughs> but it, it reminded me of uh, Proverbs 22, six, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he'll not depart from it. And yeah, it was just such a beautiful thing. And I, I really enjoyed that little moment. We, we do it quite often at nighttime, but um, not always, sadly. No, nah, that's fantastic. Kids are you're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, Positively Different. Okay, so Positively Different news. Let's uh, let's talk about it, Daniel. What have we got? Okay, so today we have a story about a man named Tillman Waldthaler. I'm assuming it's German, so I'd like to pronounce the W with a V because it's got okay. that sort of European spin to oh, it. We will believe you. I studied it for a while, so I've got some knowledge in that area. So, Waldthaler? Yes. No, since 1977, he has cycled 520,000 kilometres through 143 countries, and he is 80 years old. So he started this in 1977. Yep. How many countries was that again? 143. 143. 520,000 kilometres. Half a million kilometres. Was the circumference of our world... I can't remember off the top of my head. Has he made it around the world yet? (laughs) Or several times? He's cycled enough... That I imagine he probably would have, um, but he's yeah, boasting, I suppose, that he has the body of a 50-year-old. He could jump on his bike today at 80 and just ride 160 kilometres straight. I don't think I could do that on a on my best day, quite honestly. But he was born in Germany in 1942, and he was raised in the Italian Dolomites, trained as a pastry chef, and came to Australia in the 1960s, and he worked on and off around different places before he met somebody who was actually cycling with all of their possessions and thought, you know what? That's really cool. This guy's got a bunch of interesting life stories. I want to f- do the same thing. So he's jumped on a bike and he started riding around the world and meeting interesting people. He actually met his wife 
in the Sahara Desert and she was doing the same thing. She was cycling. No way. As well. <laughs> That's amazing. And so he's come across her and seen that she was cycling and thought, well, she must be a strong woman. She must be fantastic going through the Sahara, Sahara Desert all by herself. And they've hit it off and they've ended up married. And they said they don't have any children together, but they've got 14 bikes between them. So... <laughs> Making up for the children again. Okay, so the circumference of the world is forty thousand kilometers. Oh yeah. So, so he's, he's been it. around the world many times, many, 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 many times on a on a push bike. But he's had some really interesting circumstances in his life. He's come across where he's been held at gunpoint in Iraq by people that are border patrol, and he sat next to Bob Marley on a plane, got a signed shirt from him, and then as he was cycling met somebody in the world who was a massive Bob Marley fan and gave them the shirt as a, as oh, a wonderful nice. gesture. And well, I'm just thinking about cycling across the Sahara Desert because I was taking that out one time to compare, you know, the Sahara crossing with the, uh, say, the crossing of Western Australia. Yep. And uh, if you the Trans-Sahara um, Highway is, um, you know, one of the more remote highways in the world, to about 250 kilometres between fill stops. Yep. Um, I think the Trans Labrador in Canada, you've got about 400 kilometres between fuel stops. Those sorts of trips that you, if you don't plan for it, you're yeah, in you've got to, serious Yeah, you've got to plan trouble. for it and think about it. So, you know, this guy was obviously well planned for it. Uh, the Canning Stock Route in Western Australia, of course, is 1,850 kilometres between fuel <laughs> stops. <laughs> kind of blast everything else off the, off the charts. But anyway, I wonder whether he's done the Canning Stock Route on his bike. I yeah. believe it has been done. Somebody will have to. Uh, I know it's been done on a motorbike. I believe it's been done on a on a, on a push bike. One of the really funny parts about this, though, is he has never broken a bone until last year. He actually fell off his bike on a cycle path in Cairns and fractured his collarbone. So this guy's cycled half a million kilometres all over the world in rugged terrain and crazy places, and all these stories and all these circumstances of things that have happened to him. And the first time he ever breaks a bone is on a council-approved cycle path back home where he lives. <laughs> the chances of that happening compared to any other point in his life that he's been in any other country and the chance to break some bone and it literally happens last year on something so mundane. <laughs> uh, isn't that how it always goes? Okay, so uh, just looking at this up very quickly, yes, people do... Uh, ride a push bike across the Canning Stock Route. It's not possible without support vehicles, and they estimate that it will take about 23 days if you are an extremely fit person. Yeah, wow. There you go. <laughs> if anybody out there has done that or wants to do that, give us a call at the station. <laughs> yeah, hey, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll come and be your support person. We'll sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> Let's raise some money for a good cause. Now, with this guy, does he does he cycle with a support vehicle or not? No, it's just him and his stuff and his just, wife. Just, yep. It's sort of bunched all in the back. Uh-huh. So travel super light. Yep. Put it on the bike and away you go. It's pretty crazy. That's amazing. Guy must be so fit. It's amazing what the human body can do, you know. You think about all of the things that we make, that we make as human beings, like we make a computer, we make a car, and the more you use it, the faster it wears out. You know, yep. you're always looking for that uh, for that barn find car that is, you know, 60 years old and has 20,000 miles on the clock because it's still going to be in relatively usable condition. That's because they built things better back in the day. That's right. Here you've got a guy who's 80 years old. 80. He's got 400,000 kilometres on the 
on the clock. 500. 500,000 kilometres on the clock, half a million kilometres on the clock, and all of that work has only made him stronger. Yep. It's crazy. So things that humans make, they get weaker the more you use them. The things that God makes, they get stronger the more you use them. Amen. What an incredible machine the human body is. <laughs> Perfectly designed. All right, we've got another story too, which one's an amazing, this really goes well with our theme of servitude and the servant idea that we're looking at this week. So there's a, a gentleman by the name of Jim, Jim McInvale who lives in Texas and runs a gallery furniture shop. His nickname is Mattress Mac. He has actually opened up two of his locations to house and provide food and shelter and accommodation and warmth, energy, and so forth, 3,000-plus people and more than 700 members of the uh, Houston community. So, sorry, 3,000-plus meals to 700 people in the area from all the troubles they're having over there with the snow right now, all the generators being out, no power, no warmth, and it's causing a lot of issues. So he's opened up his shops. He's done the same thing previously during Hurricanes Katrina and Hurricane Harvey. And his staff have basically come in and rigged up solutions to meet the plumbing demand. And then they've let people settle in to fill up on warm meals, watch some TV and get some much needed rest. He recognises a lot of people are shell-shocked and really beaten down by what's going on right now in Texas with the lack of support. I've seen reports of FEMA supposedly going in with 60 generators, but there's no reports on where these generators are going. And you've got 60 generators to thousands of people, thousands of homes that are really struggling and the numbers just don't match up. So this guy's gone out of his way to really help out. And people have come along and said, you know, it's wonderful that you've done such a great thing. And um, he's just, uh, what really caught me about this is when he was interviewed, he said, to whom much has been given, much is expected, which is actually... Luke twelve forty eight. That's right. The newspaper doesn't tell you it's Luke twelve forty eight or anything to do with the Bible. It just gives you this feel good quote. But clearly, this guy has some kind of Christian background or understanding of biblical principles and recognizes the importance of him having a lot and being able to open up to give to others that are really struggling and in need. And I think that's just such a beautiful story. It is. That's fantastic. That's absolutely amazing. It's it's just good to hear stories like that, you know, happening, good things happening around our world. So he's also set up a GoFundMe campaign so he can help alleviate the ongoing related, storm-related impact on the community and people can give where necessary. And I think things like GoFundMe are amazing because you can get so much needed funds raised in such a short amount of time. And you can get the message out there. Yeah, amen. About what's actually happening. Yep. And uh, unfiltered and raw. That's right. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. And in today's more serious stories, well, we kind of have to talk about this one, I think, and that is the massive back down by Facebook, who, uh, as you know, earlier in the week blocked all Australian news uh, due to the Australian government saying, no, you need to pay for that in exactly the same way as, you know, for instance, here on Faith FM, we pay royalties for the use of people's music and so forth, and it's like we're using people's journalism. You need to you need to cough up and pay for it, and they're like, fine. We'll the, take our yeah, bat and ball and go home, and you can live without news, and kind of expected by calling the bluff of the Australian government that the Australian government just you know, might come under lots of pressure and back down. But it seems that most Australians were kind of initially just ticked off with Facebook and then they kind of yawned because it's like, well, we don't read our news there anyway. (laughs) 
it's such a such an Aussie response. <laughs> but they were also stopping a lot of pages that were very beneficial to people too. Oh, absolutely. There was, um, you know, it was it was a very very, and this is what really ticked off a lot of Australians is that they flexed their corporate muscle by endangering Australians' lives. So they closed down, you know, the Western Australia's bushfire page. They closed down 1-800-RESPECT, which is dealing with domestic abuse. Uh, three days before the vaccinations were rolled out, they re-registered a whole bunch of anti-vax pages in Australia. You know, this was really nasty, nasty stuff. And I think a lot of Australians saw it for the nastiness that it was. And even those these even though these things only existed for a few hours, it was basically a demonstration of power. Yeah. And I think they completely misread the Australian <laughs> culture. <laughs> it's like, do that in Australia, and it's just like, yeah, well, you know, we will migrate somewhere else very, very easily, very, very quickly. It's literally the epitome of it's all good. Anyway, so the government has come through and said, we'll give you an extra month to negotiate with the news companies how much you're going to pay them. They've used that as a face-saving exercise and have sort of said, well, all we needed was that extra month. Well, you know, Google managed to do it um, a long time ago and they've had many, many months to do so. But, you know, let them have some face-saving and it seems that uh, they're going to back down and start posting news again. It was interesting, uh, news postings dropped by 80% in Australia, or attempted news postings. But what I think Facebook probably didn't realise is that only 6% of Australians use Facebook for their news, Mm. compared to 45% of people in the United States. So we don't really use Facebook for news anyway. So it was all a bit bit of a big yawn, and it's like, whatever. And they've really got to weigh up that against the PR that it brings them by cracking down on it. So they have uh, taken a massive PR hit over this. And, um, yeah, so, and, and also the 6% of Australians that do use Facebook for news uh, use it passively anyway, which is, you know, not really that big. News apps um, did uh, top out on the um, Apple App Store. Would have been a good time to invest. <laughs> yes, yes, for like a day, um, as people just sort of migrated elsewhere. And this is the thing with um, digital media is that um, it, it, it's, it's very fickle and people migrate so easily and on such a small whim from one platform to another. Yeah. All you've got to do is, uh, you know, tick them off a little bit. Well, the responses can be instantaneous because of the improvements in the That's digital right. age. You can do things, you can literally go, I'm leaving Facebook, downloading this app straight away to get news within the next five seconds. That's right. They they need to keep people interested and in the loop. Okay, so here's the interesting thing. The rest of the world has been watching Australia. Um, Plucky Australia headlines uh, around the world because we're a tiny country, really. We are. We're a tiny country and we've taken on one of the... One of the biggest, well, several of, we've taken on the biggest tech giants mm. in the world yeah. and won those battles. So that's kind of cool. Uh, so Microsoft um, is now forming a coalition with a whole bunch of European uh, countries to make Facebook do the same thing over there. Amen. Uh, Canada is about to follow suit. Uh, a precedent has been set here. It will now go global. People can <laughs> see that, you know, this is going to be something that is going to provide financial support for. And this was the problem. There's a lot of your smaller journalists who would simply go out of business because they couldn't afford to produce content because they're just not being paid for it. And therefore, the only news 
that could stay in business were your massive corporations that were big enough to actually pay for news. And so it would, uh, you know, definitely create an imbalance in the news that is available. Yeah, it'd become more of an echo chamber of one particular That's topic right. being produced. Okay, so this is an interesting story, um, Daniel. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this one. So uh, Seattle uh, last year during the BLM riots was kind of ground zero for calls to defund the police. They were calling for, what was it, $100 million or something or other to be taken out of the police force. Yeah. Uh, they created the, you know, the the autonomous police-free zone oh, in yes, the middle the of the city. And the other, other locales well, that they made themselves. Okay, so now the Seattle city has, well, funds a homeless shelter. That's a good thing. Um, but this particular homeless shelter, which is funded by the city of Seattle, has just put up instructions and posters and encouragement and provided kits for um, people to smoke heroin and do booty dumping, um, which is where you inject drugs rectally. So they're providing all of the gear. right? So that you can do all of this. Um, so this is, um, you know, if I'm not sure if you, where that falls under healthcare services. Well, if you're <laughs> mind boggling, isn't it? It's just staggering. <laughs> I'm, I'm lost for words here. So, uh, and, and of course, um, booty dumping was what, uh, George Floyd was high on at the time of his death. So, you know, this is something that often has bad outcomes all around for everybody involved. Um, but they've said, well, you know, injections can cause, uh, what is it, phlebitis, vasculitis, cellulitis, vein scarring, abscesses, and systemic infections, etc., etc. Lots of things you can get from that. And so if we hand out free drugs and we give them kits so they can take those drugs in different methods and teach them different ways of taking those drugs, then we will reduce the physical harm. Uh, the problem is that it doesn't do anything about the psychotic effects of those drugs. It doesn't do anything about the psychotic effects of, that those drugs have on the individual or on the community around them. Yeah, I think I've got a lot of theories on this that I won't share on air, but a lot of the circumstances where of, they... A lot of personal conspiracy <laughs> theories there, Daniel. And experiences. Sure. Um, but when they provide safer, and I use that term loosely, ways to ingest narcotics it's in an attempt to sort of pass it off as a benefit to the community so if you provide safe places for people to inject drugs they're not going to be doing it in back alleys and leaving syringes for children to walk on if you provide them with needles they're not sharing dirty needles amongst each other where they're spreading diseases so they try and dress it up as a circumstance of benefiting the community and benefiting them in some way but when it boils down to it it's still promotion of them ingesting narcotics in some way, which is horrible. And it doesn't it doesn't have any of the um, deterrence that you would normally have. You don't have that deterrent of saying, well, this is a bad thing that is not normal. You're basically normalising it. And um, it doesn't have the, the motivation of all of the physical side effects to stop people taking the drugs so that they have the psychotic side effects. And, of course, 
what this has resulted in is this one homeless shelter. Now, there must be homeless shelters, I'm thinking, in the Hunter Valley that you're familiar with. I'd like to compare these stats with homeless shelters that you're familiar with. So this one homeless shelter where this is happening, last year they averaged seven police calls per day. That's pretty intense. I would say that's pretty intense. Um, I'm not sure whether you ever experienced anything like that when you're in the police force, any of the homeless shelters around this area. No, they're usually pretty good in these areas. It's more the juvenile homeless shelters or the places, the refuges where the children would be. And it's kind of, I guess, what you expect when you start handing out free drugs. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Before I say any more, we're going to um, have... Uh, we're going to head over to our interview of the day. We've got uh, David Haupt joining us on the phone. David, welcome to the show. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning to your listeners. Great to be back. David, we've been talking about dealing with um, conflict and so forth. Whereabouts are we up to on this discussion? It's our last conversation today on that topic, and we're focusing on uh, the promises that when uh, forgiveness is rendered. Um, how do we deal with that? But more important at, at the same time, how do we deal with things when it doesn't work out, when someone just refuses to come to the party and willing to confess and make amends? So shall I start with uh, the, the, the four promises of forgiveness? So in other words, if um, a reconciliation has been reached, then it is vital that we actually follow these four steps. The first one that I promise that I will not dwell on this incident. In other words, once I've forgiven that person, it's over and done and dusted and we're not going to bring it up again. Sadly, in many relationships, uh, marriages, parent-child relationships, we keep on bringing that old uh, issues up which therefore keeps on breaking our, our promise that we've made to each other to forgive. So we need to kind of make this uh, pact, I guess, in our marriage relationship that anything that has been apologised for and forgiveness for is inadmissible in any future discussion. Is that kind of the uh, direction we need to go with that? Very true. I will not bring this incident up and use it against you. Is a decision that we need to make, a promise that we need to make in our own hearts. And I will not use it against the other person again. I think that's excellent advice. I uh, I think we've all sort of, you know, had that experience of, you know, and, and you get conflict in any kind of relationship, but I think we've all had that experience where, you know, something from, you know, 10 years ago in the relationship that we might have completely forgotten about, somebody else hasn't forgotten about, and it just comes back up again and sort of blindsides us, and it's like, wow, where did that come from? And I think that that can be very, very damaging to a relationship. Mm. A third component is that I will promise not to talk to others about it. In other words, we call it triangulation, talk to third parties about it. Yes. So it will, it will stay between you and me and will go nowhere. It will, it will actually die with us. And the fourth one there is that I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our uh, personal relationship. Those are the four promises that is crucial if you want to maintain a proper relationship after conflict had arisen between you and you've resolved it. But here's my question. Sorry. I was going to say, when you talk about uh, not sharing with others, I guess my question along with that would be your counsellor be an exception to that? 
Well, even as a counsellor, I'm bound by confidentiality. But so often, if in relationships, and let's imagine my wife and myself, uh, we've got an issue between us, so I go and I talk to my family about what she's done wrong, the wrong that she has caused. We've already resolved our issue, but my family then has built up a resistance against my wife. Through triangulation, Bible calls it a, a, a more straightforward word, uh, namely gossip. I actually destroy that person with whom I'm actually trying to become reconciled. Mm, mm. And it, it so often happens, you know, and it destroys families along the way. But Lyle, here's the more important question that I'd like to ask of you and the listeners. What do I do if I have done everything possible to reconcile with someone and it just didn't work? What do I do now? And I think that's a really valid question. I'd love to hear from our listeners. Maybe they've got some experience on this or they've had a circumstance where this has happened. What did you do in that circumstance? Uh, what what should we do? You know, we try and reconcile, but we are only one part of the equation. There is another part of the equation, which is the other person, and they not may not be prepared to receive or participate in any form of reconciliation. Where do we go to from there? So the Bible is very clear. It says, uh, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with so, as you correctly say, uh, peace comes from two angles and take two people to reconcile a relationship. And when things do not work out, the big temptation comes in to take matters in our own hand. In other words, to go back to the worldly way and taking matters in our own hand will actually bring us right back to where we originally started in this program, looking at peace faking. In other words, we either withdraw or we attack, we eventually start to withdraw from a relationship or we go into litigation, either eventually commit suicide or the, the other pole is where we attack, we, um, there's litigation, there is eventually murder in the worst case scenario. That is the worldly approach. But there's five points, if we have the time this morning, which I quickly want to bring up, because it is very clear that the Bible actually advises us to start off by praying. Uh, we might not be able to change the other person's mind, but guess what? We have someone that can actually work with that individual and start to change them. And when I start to pray for my enemy, something happens in my own heart. I start to look with different eyes to my enemy, but it also releases the Holy Spirit to start to work in that person's heart and mind. In other words, my job is to honor God by doing the right thing, by coming and presenting that person in petition to God in prayer. God's part, on the other hand, is to work in the heart of that individual to transform their mind and their heart as well. The Bible says that we are to pray for our enemies. Exactly, exactly. The second point, Lyle, is to guard your own heart. Uh, how do I do that? Romans twelve fourteen says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Um, my human nature, if I have done everything possible to reconcile a relationship and that person 
continues in their aggression, my heart just wants to take over and I want to curse. The Bible actually says the opposite. It says, bless that person. And when I have a heart forgiveness for that individual, something rubs off on that individual and starts to transform their life as well. And a miracle can happen, which we might never have anticipated. Mm. The third one is to stay close to godly counsel. While there's enough uh, people in this world that will scream at us saying that the worldly way is the only way out. In other words, withdraw from that person, cut your ties, walk away, or take them to court, do litigation, or harm that individual. Where the Bible... Have, have revenge. And don't we say that revenge is so sweet? Mm. But is it really? Well, revenge, revenge sort of, you know, revenge, revenge requires that you let that other person live inside of your mind until, you know, supposedly that uh, revenge is going to be satisfied. And to begin with, there's every likelihood that it never will. And so that person will always live rent-free inside of your mind. But even when it is, who does it do more harm to? Yourself. I just recently said to someone, how long do you want that person to have access to your brain, your, your mind that control you? And, you know, wanting to go the, the litigation route to just, you know, get them out of your brain. Don't give them access. Start to pray for them. Uh, Proverbs thirteen twenty says, walk with the wise and become wise for a companion of fools suffers harm. If I actually surround myself with people that will not promote the worldly way, but rather the godly way and will support me in that, I will actually experience that I have the courage to, to work through a problem even though someone else doesn't want to become reconciled. The fourth point here is to keep on doing what is right. Um, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Romans twelve seventeen. Um, it is so easy for us to want to take that uh, that evil route that you know to do harm now because that individual is is not wanting to become reconciled. But our final point, the ultimate weapon that we actually have, is to deliberately focus on love. And here, the example of Jesus Christ comes to the fore. And again, his command in the New Testament, he says, if you see your enemy being hungry, what do I do? Feed I feed him. him. Feed if him. I see him thirsty, give him water to drink. Give exactly. So we seek to meet our enemy's real life, day-to-day needs while the Holy Spirit is working their heart and we actually uh, show kindness because we are siding ourselves with God, God will have the greatest opportunity to bring transformation in that person's life. And so really in many ways that establishes, you know, that old saying that if I make my enemy my friend, I have conquered my enemy. Exactly. Exactly. And I have found over the years working with many conflict situations is that most conflict is based on a misunderstanding, miscommunication. 
and an assumption that we have that that the other person had intended something. And as you sit down and you actually communicate and you open your heart in front of that person, they eventually turn around and say, wow, I never saw it that way. I'm so sorry for the part that I've played. Remember the golden rule that we brought up earlier. The first one to take the lead in wanting to make amends often will find that the other one will become reciprocal, wanting exactly the same. So I ask couples often this question, in, in a major conflict situation, which one of you should start, which one should reach out now first to make amends? The real answer is the one that is the maturest between the two of them. Now that puts a little bit of pressure on us because all of us wants to be the, the more mature person. But that means that we actually need to take the lead in resolving the conflict. When you have that kind of a situation, I mean, as you say, that puts pressure on the couple because it's like, well, who's going to be the mature one here? And I I imagine if I was sitting there in your counselling room, I would be feeling under pressure. Well, I don't want to make amends right now because I'm feeling hurt and in pain, but I also want to be more mature than the other person over there. I mean, my natural humanity is sort of going to uh, chafe on that. How does that actually, how does that actually how does that act? What, what kind of a, an effect does it actually have when one of them sort of matures up, so to speak, and reaches out? What do you see take place then in, at that point? Let me take a step back. The majority of us in our relationships will, uh, will come to the party on a 50 50 basis. As long as you scratch my back, I will scratch yours as well. In reality, that is not a biblical way. The Bible is asking us to fully commit. So Ephesians chapter 5 says, uh, be followers of Jesus Christ. How did Christ do it? He fully, 100% committed whether that individual will commit or not. Jesus came down to this earth to reconcile us to the Father with a full 100% commitment. And that is what a mature person would do. That is completely against our sinful human nature because I will only give to the degree that you will commit. Mm. And that, that is one of the crises of, of our marital relationships today in, in life, that uh, we actually enter into, for instance, a marriage on the basis that we expect the other one to commit first. Now, right. Yeah, yes. sorry, David, we're, we're, we're running out of time again, as we always do. But uh, I think that's a really important point to finish this off on is just going in, making that commitment before God to each other and being the mature person to, you know, to instigate or to initiate um, resolving yep. that particular conflict. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.